Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, our head pastor, Dr. Rhett Payne, studies the book of Romans. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of his word. Let's begin. Please take uh, your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 2. The first words of the song that Mark is saying said, we'll all stand before the judgment throne. Now that's a, that's a scary thought, but we don't think about that very often, but we should. And so in this part, we'll talk about the judgment and what that means. My sources include R.C. Sproul's The Righteous Shall Live by Faith, his study on Romans, Kent Hughes's uh, commentary on Romans from Preaching the Word series, John R.W. Stott, The Message of Romans, Stuart Aliot's book, The Gospel as It Really Is, and then a message by John Piper, The Final Divide. Stand with me, please, for the reading of God's Word. You know, after the the great preacher Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, one of his parishioners cried out and said, But Mr. Edwards, is there no mercy with God? Edwards reminded the people that they had to wait till the following Sunday before they got to hear the best part of the message. The same is true for for me as we come to Romans chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is not finished with the bad news yet. The good news is coming. So please hang in there. This book has a lot more. Romans has a lot more good news than bad news. But we tend to think about the bad news in terms of what the Bible has to say. But let's listen to what God has to say to us in his word from Romans chapter 2. We'll read the first 16 verses. This is the word of God. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, 
their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you again for this, your word. And may you speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak to us, Lord. And thank you that we are safe in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The hit television show Breaking Bad follows the story of Walter White, a mild-mannered chemistry teacher who, after receiving a terminal diagnosis, turns to cooking crystal meth to provide for his family. As he develops a taste for the trade, Walt slowly turns into a bold but degenerate thug. But the show doesn't soft-pedal the consequences of sin. The show's creator is named Vince Gilligan, and he writes this, If there's a larger lesson to Breaking Bad, it's that actions have consequences. I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. In one of the most memorable scenes of season four, the biblical implications of Gilligan's vision become clear. Walt's younger accomplice, Jesse Pinkman, has committed murder and then he attends Narcotics Anonymous to a meeting of support in hopes of finding relief from his guilt. After Jesse shares a thinly veiled version of his crime, the group leader counsels self-acceptance. He says, we're, we're not here to sit in judgment. To which Jesse explodes and says, well, why not? Why not? If you just do stuff and nothing happens, what's it all mean? What's the point? So no matter what I do, hooray for me because I'm a, I'm a great guy, it's all good. No matter what, do an inventory and just accept. It's really not surprising that Vince Gilligan believes in hell and judgment for human sin. The creator of the show said this, I want to believe there's a heaven, and I, but I can't not believe there is a hell. It really is amazing how we humans think and rationalize our behavior. We don't think like God. And that's understandable. We're not God. We don't accept God's assessment of the human sin and that's all around us or the inescapable fact of God's divine judgment, which is promised in Holy Scripture. I mean, I don't get too many objections when I tell people that we're all sinners. But I do seem to have a tremendous amount of difficulty getting people to recognize the gravity of their sin. Every sin the Bible says, is cosmic treason against the holy God. And yes, there are some sins that are worse than others, not only in the eyes of mankind, but also in the eyes of God. We, we put people in prison for the big ones. We don't put people in prison for gossiping at the beauty parlor or at the club. You know, John chapter 19 speaks to this when Jesus was before Pilate. Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, as we talk about in the Apostles' Creed. 
And Pilate, feeling pretty good about himself, says, you know, don't you understand? I, I have the power to crucify you or release you. And Jesus came back with this. One of my favorite verses. You'd have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And he who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. And Pilate didn't know what to do with that. You know, the way we, we tend to think is because everybody's doing bad things, then it's okay. Right? Wrong. So let's look at three lessons this morning. The first of which is this. God's judgment is inescapable. It's inescapable. Verse 1 says, you therefore have no excuse. No excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Let me first say there's a big difference between making a judgment and passing a judgment. We'll learn more about that when we get to Romans chapter 14. But for now, religious people tend to think, I'm not one of those bad guys. I'm not like those guys. In other words, they imagine because they have not actually committed one of the biggie sins, you know, one of the big ones, like, say, adultery, that they are beyond judgment. The truth is, there are many people who may not have overtly committed adultery, but they cannot deny that it has happened in their minds. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you, anyone who looks upon a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. People who claim that they have not overtly committed murder, but cannot deny that numerous times that mental knife has plunged deeply into another person's body in their head. Jesus said, I tell you, whoever is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Part of the epidemic of having a sin nature, which we all have a sin nature, is that we are blind to our own faults. That's why you get married. My wife reminds me of mine, and I'm thankful for that. This is not a poke at her. This is a poke at me. I'm thankful that she reminds me of those faults. Because I have blind spots, just like you. We all have them. We can't see, because we speak of the sinfulness of other people, we can't see how we have a plank in our own eye. You know, and unbelievers can't see it. And I, I get that unbelievers can't see it. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four says, it is the God of this age who is blind to the minds of unbelievers. The God, little g, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And you know, it's not just heathens, it's not just pagans, unbelievers who are spiritually blind. It's also de-churched people, people that, you know, at one time loved Jesus, so, so, you know, so-called. And then no longer loved Jesus. Like Jessica Alba. Several years ago, Vanity Fair magazine published an article on the actress Jessica Alba, which had the following paragraph on her faith and her views on God. It says, Alba's childhood was marked by two things. Illnesses that landed her in the hospital often, 
and a burning desire to leave a mark on the world, which at the age of 12 meant becoming a devout, born-again Christian. She says, quote, I was seeking a purpose. Alba says of her years as a member of a conservative Christian youth group, quote, I wanted to exist for a reason. And she says this lasted until she was 17 years of age, when she says she was turned off by the boundaries and the labels set by fellow churchgoers. Her acting career opened up to her a whole new world of creative people and a community where she belonged. And she says in this article, I felt like at the end of the day, God is love and everyone is just human. One of my sources said that he is never more miserable than when he is judging another person. You ever done that? You ever judge someone and then all of a sudden you kind of think about what you just said and you went, oh man, that was bad. I mean, I get it. Don't you? Hypocrites are who Paul has in mind in our text. He is addressing the essence of hypocrisy. But the point the apostle makes is the mistake that Jessica Alba and untold thousands of others have made, that because God is good, he will not judge. And that is not true. R.C. Sproul calls this the most pervasive myth in our culture today that God is viewed as a celestial Santa Claus. All we have to do is ask him for what we want and he's going to provide it. The point in our text is a judge who refuses to punish evil is not a good judge. But an unjust judge. In his goodness, God is patient. He puts off Judging us, punishing us for our rebellion and sin. He has not visited his wrath on us for all of our sins, which he could, but he hasn't, which shows the goodness of God. And Paul reminds us God's goodness and his kindness toward us in giving us all the blessings that we have should lead us to do what? To repent of our sins. Because there is no way, the Bible says, we will escape the judgment of God. So... First point, first lesson, God's judgment is inescapable. Second lesson, God's judgment is righteous. It's righteous. You know, verse 6 of the text is a pretty scary text. Verse 6 says, God, and then it has in quotation marks in my Bible, and I imagine it does in yours, God will repay each person according to what they have done. And when it has quotes like that, it's basically reminding you that this is not the first time you've seen this in the Bible. And it tells me in my Bible that this has been also given in Psalm 62 and Proverbs 24. Whenever the Lord repeats something in Scripture, it's for emphasis. It's not because he forgot he already said it. And so it's a pretty, 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 pretty powerful verse when it says God will repay each person according to what they have done. So I want you to think about your life right now for a moment. And, and it's a sobering thought, so I hope this sobers you up. To think, wow, God's going to repay each person according to what they've done. God's going to repay me according to what I've done throughout my lifetime. You know, let's think about this for a second. If, if, you, if you sin, and, and a sin is not just what you do, but it's what you say, it's what you think, it's what you don't do that you should have done. 
You start thinking about all the ways you can sin in a day. And let's say you're a walking angel and you sin maybe only three times a day. You know, and three sins a day in a year's time is at least a thousand sins. And I don't know about you, but in my lifetime, that's that's at least 50,000 sins. You're not listening. That was a joke. Do the math. Come on. John Piper states this in his message. He says, what could be more important or more relevant or more urgent or more immense or more captivating than your happiness or your misery for all eternity? We are a culture that is bent on happiness. We're a culture that is captivated by having fun. And there's nothing wrong with having fun, but it does seem to be a little on the overboard in this generation in a way that goes a little too far, if you ask me. The purpose of life, we tend to think, is for us to be happy. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if I did ask for a show of hands, I'm sure there'd be a lot of hands that would raise up on the question, is the purpose of life for you to be happy? Oh, oh yes. No, it's really not. The purpose of life is not for you to be happy We've been taught by this culture that it is all about my happiness, but as a follower of Christ, our purpose is the glory of God. The Westminster Confession's Shorter Catechism does it so well, answers it so well, when 500 years ago, 400 years ago, they asked the question, what is the chief end or purpose of mankind? And the answer is, man's chief end or purpose is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So whatever else this text teaches, one thing is for sure, there is a life after death, and it can either be spent experiencing the glory and honor and peace of Christ, or it can be spent experiencing eternal wrath and indignation and distress. So let me ask you, do you know that you are saved? Do you know that Christ is your Savior? 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says this in verse 1, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. And all that is saying is, don't put it off. Don't put it off. In fact, uh, look at Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes is a great, great book. It's very misunderstood. But there's a verse that you just can't misunderstand. Ecclesiastes, in the middle of your Bible, chapter 12, verse 1, says, Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. So young people, all young people, listen up. Wake up. Listen up. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. If you are in Christ, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that's good. But even so, there's the possibility that you have sinned, even sinned greatly, and are living as if whatever it is you did never happened. Maybe because you've never confessed and repented of that sin. 
David is a man that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. He was a lot like God. And yet, this man who is like God in so many ways, he sinned, and he sinned greatly. When he committed adultery with another man's wife, and then had the husband of the wife killed to cover up his crime. He sinned greatly, and then went on with his life as if nothing had ever happened. It took a godly man named Nathan to confront him, which led to his repentance. The religiously self-righteous easily forgets his or her own wrongs and feels that others' sins are a lot worse than mine. Until guilt takes over. In 1969, Dr. Bernard Nathanson served as the medical advisor for the National Association for the Repeal of Abortion Laws, now Pro-Choice America. After abortion was legalized in 1973, Dr. Nathanson became the director of the Center for Reproductive Health, which he claimed was, quote, the largest abortion clinic in the Western world. Later in his life, Nathanson said this, I knew every facet of abortion. I helped nurture the center in its infancy by feeding it great amounts of blood and money. But in 1974, in an article published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Nathanson expressed his growing uneasiness with abortion. Dr. Nathanson wrote, I am deeply troubled by my own increasing uncertainty that I had in fact presided over 60,000 deaths. There is no longer, he says, serious doubt in my mind that human life exists from the very onset of pregnancy. Dr. Nathanson's, his unease was intensified by the arrival of ultrasound technology. He writes, for the first time we could really see the human fetus, measure, observe it, watch it, and indeed bond with it and love it. I changed my mind because the new scientific data persuaded me that we could not indiscriminately continue to slaughter what was demonstrably a human being. Nathanson's final insight into the humanity of the unborn child, it really had nothing to do with religion. As a matter of fact, at the time he considered himself, during all this in the 70s, he considered himself a Jewish atheist. That's what he called himself. But before his death in 2011, Dr. Nathanson converted to Christianity. Why? When he was baptized and received into the church, and when he was received, he was asked why. And he said this, he said, because no religion, none match the special role for forgiveness in Christianity. And he's right. There's an old movie that he produced. He was the narrator for what's called the silent scream. You see, he changed his views, and he narrates the silent scream, showing how inside the womb is a baby. And years ago, there was a young lady who was going to have an abortion, and her dad called me and said, Would you come talk to my daughter? And I took that little video, and I said, I'm not even going to say a word. I just want us to watch this video together. And she sat there with tears running down her, her cheeks, and she said, I could never... I could never do it. And yet many people do. 125,000 a day 
125,000 a day, 40 to 50 million abortions in this world every year. And so there will be judgment for all these deaths, but there's also mercy for those who repent and who recognize the kindness and the compassion and the patience of God to give you time to repent. And so the final lesson is God's judgment is impartial. Verse 11, it says, for God does not show favoritism. And the context here is that the Jews are the people of the law. Possessing it, listening to it, being read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. While the Gentiles, they weren't the people of the law, so they never got the chance to hear the law. Yet verse 12 says in our text, Jews and Gentiles are all in the same category. The Jews have the law and they're held accountable for that. The Gentiles don't have the law, but they have it in their heads. They have it in their hearts. Because we all have a sense of right and wrong deep within us. We know what's right, we know what's wrong. The point he's making in our text is that all who have sinned will not only perish, but will be judged no matter whether they're Jews or Gentiles. So his point is, no, we, can, we cannot come before God and say, well, I was a member of a church, or I'm a descendant of Abraham, which counts for nothing. God's word says that God will judge each person according to his or her works, And that there's no partiality. He's not going to look at you and say, well, I like you because you're American or you're not American. It's not going to make any difference. We will be judged by the Lord Jesus on the day of judgment. The Father has delegated to the Son the role of judge and he will reveal the secrets of our hearts. Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, nothing, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And for every manager, there has to be an accounting. If you're a good manager, you have to do an accounting. And God is an excellent manager. And he will do a full accounting of how we've lived. Now, before you walk out of here and think, oh my goodness. What in the world is that going to be like? Then you need to hear this. Jesus himself warned his own generation that what they did in secret would be shouted from the housetops. Which means all those skeletons and all those closets will be revealed. Which is why we need the blood of Christ. Think about that for a moment. We need The blood of Christ. We need to be covered by the blood of Christ. But you know what the good news is? That's what redemption is all about. What Mark sang about. I trust in Jesus. My great deliverer. My great defender. The scripture calls Jesus our advocate who goes before the Father pleading our case. Not because we deserve it, but because he paid the price so we could be forgiven of our sins. It gets no better than that. There's no religion that has good news like this. But in spite of what you've done, you can be forgiven of your sins. And so that's what redemption is all about. It's a divine cover-up. It's a divine cover-up. God is the one who covers up our sins 
with the blood of Christ. It is worth shouting about. It's the greatest news in the world. So let me try to make it as crystal clear as I can. You do not want to appear before the Lord like Adam and Eve did. How did they appear before the Lord? Naked and ashamed. You don't want to appear that way after they sinned. They were naked. They were uncovered. But by trusting in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, in taking your place, dying for your sin, you are covered by the blood of Jesus and all those secrets are covered in his blood. And even though you may struggle to forgive yourself for them, God has already forgiven you for them. Did you hear the, the verse that Bo led us in? The verse of assurance. Look at that verse. Look at this verse. I will cleanse them from all their guilt. From all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And that leads us to our verse of the week, which is, is the greatest news in the world. John 5, 24. Let's read it out loud together. John 5, 24. Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Hallelujah. If you've come to the altar, if you've never come to Jesus with your sin, do so today. Receive his mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this gospel, this great news, this incredible news that is ours for the taking. And yet, Lord, the enemy would like to blind the minds of unbelievers in this place today. Would you open their eyes and their hearts to see that there is hope for them, that there is forgiveness with you. That there is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will lead us to come to the altar as we sing together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.